We are then continuing on then through the book of John, uh, our little bit a year and a half uh, long journey through the book of John, uh, and we are now finishing up chapter five. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them or turn them on, whatever your preference may be, and we will be in John chapter five. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 47 this morning. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller ones. So we'll be in chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. You grab one of the Bibles on the chair, it's going to be on page 762. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, And so what I'm going to do, it's a longer passage. I'm going to go ahead and just read the whole thing uh, right here at the beginning, and then I'll go back and just make reference throughout. But we'll go ahead and read this passage and then we will get started. So John chapter 5 verses 19 through 47. This is right on the heels of this healing that Jesus did at the pool of Bethesda uh, and this controversy around the Sabbath. So Jesus is now responding to his critics over how he can heal on the Sabbath and command someone to carry their bed on the Sabbath. So this is Jesus' response to them. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just." Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You even sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not to the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you already, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so there is a lot here, obviously. This is uh, probably, I would say, the most dense monologue kind of section of Jesus describing who he is. There's so much kind of packed in there. But the way that this whole kind of package, this whole text works together, uh, it's kind of like, uh, if you guys watch any Netflix shows, kind of like The Iron Fist, actually. The latest Marvel show on Netflix. Some of you guys aren't into Marvel. That's fine. I am. Um, And this was the latest. So here's, in in quick synopsis, here's the story of the Iron Fist. There was a boy whose father was a billionaire and owned a company just like every superhero movie starts. Uh, And in this story at the very beginning, they're flying uh, over Asia. They're in a plane. This family, they're in a private jet. The jet goes down and crashes and everyone dies, or at least so everyone thought, because luckily there were some monks who were walking by and saw the boy and took him into their monastery that wasn't on planet Earth, but was through this special portal that got you to another Earth. That portal only opened up once every few decades, but it happened to be right when that plane was crashing. So they took the boy into their monastery, they raised him up, taught him Kung Fu, and gave him an iron fist. It's very believable. Now, what is interesting is that later on, as, after this boy has grown, this portal opens back up, and he then leaves the monk in the monastery and goes back to America. And he finds his father's company now being run by two of his childhood friends. And so he walks onto the scene, kind of like homeless looking, not wearing any shoes, hair's all disheveled. And he begins to make these claims that he is Danny Rand, the son of this guy who owns the company. And everybody's like, no, 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 Danny died in a plane crash 30 years ago. You're, you're, that's, you, are, you are a crazy homeless person is who you are. This, this, your claim is ridiculous and unfounded. So what he slowly starts to do then is he starts to kind of bring forward evidence to prove that his claim was actually true, things that only he himself would know. And the thing that put someone over the edge is he, uh, with his childhood friend who now runs the company, is he sent her a bag of M&Ms and took out all the brown ones because she doesn't like the brown M&Ms. And she opened it up and started crying. She's like, oh my gosh, it's Danny. I believe him now. And, um, and what he did was he was making this ridiculous claim that no one believed, but he brought forth evidence to try to prove that claim. Well, friends, honestly, that's the same thing that Jesus is doing here. In verses 19 through 29, he, he's making these unfounded claims that he is in fact one with the father that he is in fact the son of man that his father isn't just the president of a company but his father is the king of the universe and he is one with him and he is stepping onto the scene with all of the rights and privileges that being the son of god brings with it and everyone's going no that's ridiculous you're some crazy crazy homeless guy and he goes fine you don't believe me let me bring forward some evidence Let me bring forward some witnesses that will bear witness to me. Did you hear all the kind of legal jargon throughout the text? Testimony, witness, it's throughout. It's almost like a courtroom scene. It's honestly kind of helpful to imagine that, that Jesus comes up and gives his testimony first, and then he steps off the stand and calls four witnesses up and says, these people are bearing witness to me. And he gives four different witnesses. He gives um, John the Baptist. He gives the works that he's doing, his father and the scriptures. 
And so that's kind of the structure of the whole. So verses 19 through 29, we see the claims of Jesus. These ridiculous claims that he is actually one with the Father, that he is just as the Father. And then in verses 30 through 47, we see the witnesses of Jesus. The witnesses of Jesus. So those will be the two points that we'll be looking at today, the claims of Jesus and the witnesses of Jesus. And we'll go through the claims quickly and then kind of try to drill into a few of the points of the witnesses that he brings up. So first, the claims of Jesus. What is he claiming? Well, primarily, he's claiming who he is. So he's bringing forth both his identity and his authority. So we see his claims of his identity in verses 19 through 24, and then his claims of his authority in 25 through 29. So in verses 19 through 24, Jesus is pretty much making the claim that he is one with the Father, that him and the Father are one. Same heart, same mind, same mission, same will that we do everything together. Not only is he one with the Father, but he makes a claim that he should be honored just as the Father is. And remember who he's talking to here, these Jewish temple officials, these people who revere the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is stepping on the scene and saying, hey, the way that you view him is the same way you should view me because we are one and the same. The purpose of all this in verse 23 is that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. What an unfounded and ridiculous claim. This man shows up, this carpenter walks on the scene and claims that he should have the same praise and honor as God the Father. And then he says, whoever does not honor the Son, whoever does not honor me, does not honor the Father. So what Jesus is saying is is that, listen, guys, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. Because we're the exact same. And if you don't honor me, you're not honoring the Father. And he's saying, guys, if you, if you get Jesus wrong, then you get God wrong. Because they are one in the same. This unfounded claim of his identity in verses 19 through 24. But then in verses 25 through 29, he's beginning to claim what he has authority over. And namely, we see, he says he has authority over all of life and all judgment. And again, listen, we could, we could drill into this for the rest of the day and for the next couple of weeks probably. Um, But with the nature of this text, we've got to kind of take a 40,000-foot view of it. And so as he looks at life, he's saying, I have come to give you life, not just now. We see in verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So he's saying there is life now and there is also life to come. And he is the one who has authority over both of them. And so he's pretty much telling these people, he's saying, guys, listen, just as a dying boy from Capernaum heard the healing voice of Jesus... And a lame man's legs heard the command to rise by the pool of Bethesda, then so also will the dead in their graves respond to the voice of Christ. That this is the authority that I have. I can speak and life creates. That's who I am. Life now, for those who are spiritually dead, like Paul wrote, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that if you will believe me and hear my words, you will have life today. Spiritual life today and life in the midst of everything that you have coming at you, but also life to come. There is a time coming whenever I will return and all of our bodies will be raised. Right? He says that an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And he's saying that there is a day to come as well when our bodies will be physically raised. And you will have not just life today, but life eternal. If you come to me. 
and I am the one who speaks that. And so maybe you're here and your life feels like it's falling apart. You're here and you feel like you've, you've tried to grasp to kind of place all the pieces together and it's just not working. You feel empty, you feel drained, and you feel like there's nothing that you can do to find life. Friends, you can find life in this one who speaks today, in Jesus, as he says, come to me and I can give you life now. Not just in the weeks to come, not just some hope of a wish, but life today if you would come and look to Christ. But there may be some of you here who go, honestly, my life isn't all that bad. Right now, my life is kind of coming together. Things are falling in place. I have a job that I like. Uh, my family is uh, not perfect, but I, I love my family. Uh, kids are doing well. It, it seems like we have hope. There's financial security. Things kind of seem together. And you don't really feel that desire, that need to come and find life. You go, that's eh, maybe not really for me right now. Friends, if that's you, I would say that, that even may be true, that you may not feel that right now. But there will be a day whenever we all die, every single one of us in here, and we will have to come and stand before a judge. And not just a judge of this world, but the judge of the universe, namely this one, Jesus Christ. And on that day, there will be nothing that matters but how we respond to him. No amount of good in our life, no amount of things that we have going for us, but only how we respond to him. Right? There is a uh, fly on my shirt right now, and I feel really good about this. I don't feel good about it anymore. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a deal. All right? I'm not going to talk about the fly anymore, and you guys don't look at the fly anymore. Deal? Awesome, great. Um, I can just, to be sure, this is a small church. I can see everybody's eyes, okay? All right, good, accountability. Um, all right, so now there's, um, there's a woman in our church. Uh, her name's Sharon uh, Van Velsen. She is the wife of one of our elders at the Orlando campus. Um, they are uh, incredible, what God's done in their lives. And he was a, a former drug dealer down uh, on the coast, uh, southern coast of Miami. God got a hold of his life and has just used him remarkably. Um, and he is a dear, dear brother and serves and loves this church so, so well. Uh, and about a year and a half ago, um, Sharon was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and they were doing chemo and trying to run through tests and different things that they could do. And a couple weeks ago, they found out that it was beginning to uh, ramp up dramatically. Uh, and they said, there's, there's nothing that we can do here anymore medically. And they, they used the words months um, to live. Well, we came together, we began to pray, um, and a few days ago it began to go downhill even more, and months became weeks, and weeks may even be days. And we are still coming together as a church praying, knowing that a word from Jesus, and those cancer cells are gone. Her cells will, will re-come together and reorient, and, that, that, and she, will, she can experience healing by a word, because this, this Christ has authority over life and everything in this world. And that's our prayer. But friends, if, she, if he doesn't, then this text is no longer just an ethereal theological discussion about the judgment of God and what she's put her faith in. This now for her comes, becomes a reality that in day she may stand before this one and he, she, he will either be her judge or her savior. And she is walking through this with incredible faith. She is not scared. She is encouraging everyone that she talks to. But this is not just a theological discussion for her anymore. 
This is for her now life and death, and we should all feel that because we are no no different. Friends, there's not a single one of us who in a moment we could get a phone call and our life is turned upside down. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We have this, this wish dream of immortality that we feel like we're untouchable, but we are not. And this is all of our reality as well. So how will we come and experience and relate to this one? Will he be our judge or will he be our savior? As she knows, Sharon knows that for her, as she walks into death, that she will finally step into life because she believes this. She believes that he does not come into judgment. All those who have believed in him but they have passed from death to life. That is no longer just some cool Bible verse that goes on a mug anymore. That is hope in life for her. So these are Jesus' claims. He claims that he is one with the Father and he has authority over life and judgment. But then we see in verses 30 through 47, he now steps off the stand and brings up different witnesses to testify that his claims are actually true. So we see first, the first witness he brings to the stand is the Baptist namely John the Baptist, written about earlier in this book. And he tells these people, he said, you even sent to John as he was in his ministry, but he has borne witness to the truth. He has borne witness about me. And his testimony and his entire ministry was about pointing to me. Remember John 1.29 where Jesus steps up and John the Baptist sees him and he makes that claim that kind of summarizes the New Testament. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying, this one, this witness was pointing to me, and yet you missed it. But notice here as Jesus talks about John, he talks about him in verses 33 through 35 in the past tense. And so he says, you sent to John, he is born a witness, uh, but I say these things you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. And so what we can pull from that is either, best case scenario, John's already in prison, or more than likely, John's already been beheaded and executed. And Jesus is speaking of him after he has died. And I don't want to overlook that. Right, so John has now uh, moved on. He's now moved into this life that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus has this incredible mission that he is going forward to rescue and redeem all of God's people. But in the midst of all this, in the midst of this heated discussion, Jesus doesn't forget an individual. He doesn't forget a friend but he remembers and he knows him. And while the rest of the world may have passed on and forgotten about this one man, Jesus did not. And friends, there's something that we can take here of Jesus and his view and his care and level of intimacy for every single one of his people. That he will not forget or leave any of us. That he will always be with us. He will always see us. And so you may be a a spot in your life where you feel forgotten or maybe you feel alone, or maybe you feel unseen. And maybe you're in a job, and you feel like, okay, I know I could, I could begin to get ahead if I start to cut these ethical corners and do some things that may be against what God has called me to, but no, I'm not going to. I'm going to continue to live as Christ has called me. But then you see this guy next to you begin to cut those corners, and he gets the promotion, and he gets the raise. And you go, does anybody even see me? Friends, I can tell you that Christ sees you and that he has not forgotten you. Listen, maybe you're a a stay-at-home mom and and your life is the craziest life I have ever seen in my my life. 
and you guys are the absolute rock stars of the world because you, you not only have a job that doesn't end, you also don't get paid for it. Not only do you not get paid for it, but then whenever your responsibilities double, it's like, okay, here's one child, let me give you another one. Nothing else changes, right? Think about that in any other workplace, right? If your responsibilities doubled, there would be some kind of compensation. But instead, it's just like, here you go, here's another child, that'll cost you more sleep. That's, that's our reward. And you guys are absolutely incredible. And I, I can only imagine how there must be moments where it feels like, is anybody seeing or appreciating what I am doing? Friends, let me tell you that your Savior does. He has not forgotten you, and he does not unsee you. He is there, and he remembers. He cares for all his believing people, and he never forgets them. And so whether we feel unseen or we're going through trials, we can, we can have confidence of Christ's knowledge of who we are. Right in Psalm 56, 8, David writes this, and this confidence that we can have that, that God has kept count of my wanderings, and he has put my tears in his bottle. What a sweet, sweet reminder that while the rest of the world may forget us, our Savior does not. And no matter where we are or how alone we feel, we can always say, like in Psalm 4017, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. That God, who is holding the entire universe in place, is thinking of you, and he has not forgotten you. And we can then sing like we did earlier in that song before the throne, that my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. This is God's relation to his people. So that's the first witness we see is John the Baptist as he comes and gives this testimony. Secondly, then we see the works. We see the works. Jesus calls his works and his signs and his miracles to the stand in verse 36. He says, the testimony I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so we've talked a little bit about what the purpose of these signs and miracles were. Right Throughout the book of John, as Jesus is coming and beginning to do these different signs and wonders and these miracles, he's giving people a taste, a preview of what heaven will be like. He's saying, lame, lameness, gone. Sickness, gone. And later in Lazarus, story of Lazarus, later in John, we will see that death will be gone. And he's given these small little pockets of what our life will be like for eternity for those who are in him. But also we see here another function of these signs and these wonders. That they are given almost as an authentication of the message that he's proclaiming. Right? So it's kind of like uh, in the medieval times, uh, kings and different people would send out letters uh, decreeing different things. And to make sure you knew that this message was actually from the person who it's said to be from, they would stamp a seal on that letter. Right? And so I'm an old soul. I love old things. I love vinyl records. I, l- I wish we could dress like people did in the 1930s. And so I also love seals. Like I have a seal and I just, every now and then will just stamp a piece of paper just because I think it looks cool. Like I love old stuff. And these seals, the purpose of them was to do just that. It's saying if you see this seal, then it is sent from the person who owns it. There's only one of them. And it is an authentication of the message inside. And if there's a different seal or if that seal is broken, then you can disregard it. And Jesus is saying the same thing about all the miracles that he's doing. He's saying that each and every one of these is like a seal from the Father that I am in fact sent from him. You should know this. Look at the miracles that I am doing. This is what Isaiah prophesied that I would do, that the lame would leap like a deer. 
I just did that at the pool of Bethesda. How are you missing this? Each and every one of these should be pointing to the fact that I have been sent from the Father. And there's a few different kind of distinguishing characteristics about these seals that I think kind of bolster this claim. We see their number, the number of works that he does, their greatness, their publicity, and their character. That each of these things add to the fact that Jesus is in fact sent from the Father. So one, their number, he just did a lot of them. He did a lot of miracles. He was going around. John just chose these particularly, but in the very end of the book, the last verse in John 21, 25, he said, now there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written about them. So he's saying Jesus did a lot of miracles. He did a lot of signs, but not just were their number, but also their greatness. They were not small, but they were mighty interferences with the ordinary course of nature. They were remarkable, as he has seen this man who's been lame for 38 years rise up and walk in a moment. But also, this is the one that, that for me, I find comfort as, as someone who uh, can often struggle with skepticism, their publicity. That each of these miracles, these greatness and numerous ones that Jesus is doing, he did them publicly, often. Rarely were they often alone or in a dark corner in a room, but they were in open daylight before many witnesses and often in front of his enemies. And so there's anyone who would want to go and discount what Jesus is saying. It's the people who disagreed with them. And John wrote this book in the first century. So people were reading this. And if people wanted to go back and discount what Jesus was doing, he did enough miracles and enough publicly and in front of those who didn't like them, like him, that they could have come and discounted him. But these miracles were done publicly in front of people. And this is one of the things I love about Christianity is that God very well could have just come down and given a message to one man and said, go and tell everybody about this encounter I've had with you. But the nature of Christianity, particularly here in the first century, is it was a very public ministry. Jesus had a public ministry, and he died publicly and was buried in a public tomb. And then he rose publicly and went publicly and well, introduced himself then to over 500 people. And then those people went and said what they saw. And that is in stark contrast to every other religion, whether it be Mormonism or Islam that in those situations, it is one man who has a private encounter with God or an angelic being or divine revelations. And then that one man goes and tells everyone what God told him. And Christianity is far different from that. It is not a message from Gabriel in 610 to Muhammad or a message from Moroni to Joseph Smith in 1810, but it is a message from God, his revealed word, the Son of God, to the masses, doing these miracles publicly and then those people watching him going and telling people what they saw. So that could have absolutely been discounted, but yet it was not. It was public in its nature. And lastly, the character of these miracles, these works. They were almost always acts of love, mercy, and compassion. They were not just to build up and say, look what I can do. He could have, he could have flown everywhere, and people would have been like, who's that guy? He's like, I'm not Superman. I'm the son of man. Uh, but he didn't. Instead, he would go and he would heal people. He would reverse the curse of sin in this world. And so he's saying, these signs are bearing witness about me. They are all pointing to me. Third, the third witness that Jesus calls to the stand is the Father. In verses 37 and 38, he says, this Father is the one who has sent me, and he bears witness about me. And then he goes and he confronts these Jewish officials that are there, and he says, but you, you've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form, and his word does not abide in you. And realize what he's saying, who he's saying this to. People who have 
poured their lives in the Old Testament scriptures, who have memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And Jesus is looking them in the eyes and saying, you do not have the word of God abiding in you. How could he make that claim to these people who had given their lives to these scriptures? Well, we see the final witness in verses 39 through 40 is the scriptures themselves. And he says that you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And this is, friends, this is one of my uh, favorite verses in the last few years because of what Jesus is claiming here. And so think about what he's saying. He's saying the scriptures. And as he's referring to the scriptures, he's not talking about the New Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So he's talking exclusively of the Old Testament here when he refers to the scriptures. And he is saying that they are pointing to me, the entirety of them. And I know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm alone here, but I grew up and often can still wrestle with, as I read the Old Testament, I'm just like, man, what, what in the world does this have to do with my life? What, how am I supposed to understand this, this weird relation of Israel and these other countries and this uh, expansion into the promised land and judges and kings and sacrifices and exile? What in the world is going on? Well, Jesus gives us the key of how to understand the Old Testament. He says, put on and read, read the Old Testament the same way I do. Read it as it is pointing to me. See not only the promises and the prophecies, but also all of the stories and all of the shadows that are pointing to me. So whether it be the promise we see in Genesis 3.15 at the very beginning right after the fall, where God curses the woman, but he also gives this promise, this hope that a seed of the woman would come forth and would crush the serpent's head and his heel would be bruised. And we see there the first promise of the gospel, right in the very beginning, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. And the rest of the Bible unfolds in the shadow of that promise. It's kind of, the rest of the Bible is just a commentary on that verse, Genesis 3.15. And we see the first two-thirds of the Bible then also unpacking that. And I can't even get into all the different shadows that we see Christ in, whether it be the Sabbath, like we looked at last week, or the temple that Kenny preached in... Um, uh, John 2, the whole temple system was pointing forward to Jesus, the whole sacrificial system, stories like David and Goliath, Isaac and Abraham, each of these all are pointing forward to him. They are all bearing witness to him. And if we miss that, then we miss the whole point of the Old Testament. So they are bearing witness to him. But also look how he rebukes them. He says, you are searching these scriptures because you think in them you have a life. He's saying, no, the whole point of the scriptures is to come to me, and you are refusing to come to me that you may have life. But you are pouring yourself into these, thinking that you can somehow find it. And we may not pour ourselves into the scriptures, but we pour ourselves into other stuff to try to find life. All right, whether it be, and often the good thing, the Bible is a great thing. But whenever we then lift it up to a God thing is whenever we begin to have issues. And so in our lives, what are we searching for life in? Our jobs, our families, our kids, money, houses, whatever it may be, we are constantly trying to grasp for anything to give us life. And friends, the reality is, and we have all faced this, that everything in this world will only leave us wanting more. It can never truly satisfy. Even the good gifts from God, they weren't meant to satisfy us. They were meant to point us towards the giver. 
Because gifts, these things, all these things, money, family, jobs, they are all good things. And they make great gifts, but they make crummy gods. Right? If we are pouring our lives into our kids, hoping, okay, if I could raise them to just be great people, then I would have life. Anybody with parents, even a seven-month-old, can see that that is a nearly an impossible task. And if we are putting on them a burden that they can't carry to satisfy us, then it will not only leave us unsatisfied, it will crush whatever we put that expectation on. Don't put that on your kids. Don't put that on your spouse. Because they can't fulfill you the way that Christ can. Only he can bring you life. So come to him. Don't search for the things around us. And so lastly, the implications for us then. As we look at this and we see his claims and his witnesses, what's the implication for us in our life? I think the main thrust of this is we see that Jesus has life. He has the authority over judgment. He is God. And our, our, um, our goal in verse 40 is to come to him that we may have life. Well, then the question remains, how do we come to him? Well, ironically enough, the clearest way that we come to him is through the scriptures. Why? Because they all bear witness about him. They're either pointing forward to him from the Old Testament or pointing back to him in the New Testament. They are promises made and promises kept. And they are all central upon this cross, upon him. And so we come to the scriptures not to find life in and of themselves, but to look through them and see who God is. Right? It's like um, uh, if you've ever driven down Lakeshore right here in Claremont, Mineola. You've driven along and you see these beautiful lake houses. What does, ev- what does the back of every single lake house have? It has a huge glass window. Why? Because people want to be able to look out and see not only the lakes, but you see the sunset coming down. There's just something different about a Claremont sunset. Can I get an amen? amen. Nice. Thank you. I, man, there's just, I, I grew up in Louisiana, and there's just, it's just different. You see the clouds coming over the lake. It's just beautiful. And people put these windows in to be able to see that. But now imagine someone that walks in this home and it's the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen and someone walks up to the edge of the window and you're there with them and you're just gazing at this beauty and you look over and this guy's like studying the glass. He's chipping off maybe a little bit to be able to go back and do some samples to see what the glass is made out of. He's shining his iPhone flashlight to see what the glare is like and he's examining the glass. You're sitting there going, what are you doing? Stop looking at the window. That's not the whole point. The point is to look through it, to look at this beauty of the sunset. And friends, the Bible and the scriptures operate in a similar way. That they are not an in and of itself. And there are people who spend their lives pouring over, taking samples and studying the Greek and the Hebrew. And they are textually critical of everything in here. And they are sitting here taking samples of the glass when the most beautiful sunset in the world is in front of them. That we are to take this book and look through it to see the God who has revealed himself to us. It is a window for us to see the character and the nature of Christ pointing to him. And so we go and we pour ourselves into this to be able to see God. This is why we come. This is how we come to him. It is a window to who God is. And so it's why we're serious here at this church about teaching the Bible, because we think it's the clearest way to see God. It's why we are preaching verse by verse through John. It's why we're starting up this week women's Bible studies and next week men's Bible studies. We want to dive deeper into this, not to find life in it, but to find life in the one that it's pointing to. And so if you're, if you're struggling, listen, I know it's a struggle to read this. And if that's you, then 
Come, come be a part of our women's and men's Bible studies. It happens every other week. Starting this week, women are going to go through 1 Peter. Guys are going to go through Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to go back and forth uh, every other week uh, for the next nine weeks. Well, 18 weeks total. Um, And so come as we dive into this. Um, But also, um, there's a great app that I want to recommend. Um, So I I realize that reading the Bible and reading plans can be difficult for so many people. It is for me. And I found this incredible app called Read Scripture. Um, If you're unfamiliar with it, just go in the app store, type in Read Scripture, and download it today. Uh, Don't forget about it, because you'll hear it, and you'll leave here, and then you'll forget about it forever. Uh, Go right when you walk out of here, because there's no service in here. uh, Go right outside and download it right when you leave here. It is so, so helpful for a number of reasons. One, it's not constrained to just a year, right? So reading plans don't have to just start January 1st of the Bible, um, because what genuinely happens, generally happens, I know with me, January 1st, I'm like, okay, here's my year, reading plan, going to knock it out, going to crush it. January 1st, I nailed Genesis 1. So good. Second day, I missed it, but the third day, I catch back up, and I read two chapters, and I'm good to go. And then the fourth day, fifth day, sixth day pass by, and I don't do anything, and I'm kind of overwhelmed, and I just kind of throw it all out the window. Because there's this, there's this expectation of here's what you need to do to get it done in a year. The great thing about read scripture is you can just kind of go. If you miss a few days, you come back to it and it's not like, wow, you're a terrible Christian. You missed four days. No, it just, here's the next day for you to read. You open it up and you read it. And it's so helpful. It's a great interface. They have really helpful videos along the way as well. Go and download it. It is so, so helpful. And just read it whenever you can. Right? I don't know about you guys, but I can often get discouraged through Instagram. If you're looking through and you see this person with their Bible kind of tilted a little bit and this beautiful latte with latte art on top of it, and like it's on top of this beautiful oak table, and they have like five highlighters next to it, and the caption's like, oh, I just woke up and have spent the last four hours with my sweet and precious Savior. I just love this so much. And you're like, how do you get four hours to do that? Right, maybe you're, listen, I, my wife, we have one, we have one child, seven month old, and my wife barely has enough time to take two breaths by herself, much less take four hours to do this. So you go, where do I find the time? And take those five seconds that you have. If you say, I only have 10 minutes while, while some of my kids sleep and the other one uses the bathroom, I have like a six minute window and that's it. Well, friends, in that six minutes, just take out the Bible and read through it with what you have. It's a season. And it will pass. It's one of the good things about having people of different ages here in the church is they can look and go, it's crazy right now, but this season will pass. And so with whatever time you have, take it to pour ourselves into the scriptures, to look to him. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel like you have to have an hour quiet time every day. With whatever you have, pour yourself into this book to look to him. Do it in your families. Do it in your grace communities. Work to establish this rhythm in your life today because it's through this book that we have the clearest picture of who God is. Right? People always complain about, not, about wanting to hear God speak to them. And yet their Bibles stay closed on the shelf collecting dust. Friends, this book is living and active. God is still speaking. We just have to go, pull back the blinds, look through the window, and gaze at our Savior. So Jesus made some bold claims here in response to the Sabbath controversy. And now he's claiming to be just as the Father and one with, with him, deserving all honor. He's claiming to be God, and he points to witnesses around him to substantiate that claim. John the Baptist, signs and wonders, the Father himself, and finally, the Scriptures. They are all singing out in unison that this man is in fact who he says he is, namely the Son of God, the Messiah. 
and in him is life, both now and for eternity. And the question that we face today, whether you're not a Christian or you've been a Christian for 70 years, is will you come to this man and find life? It is offered. Will you come and see for yourself? Let's pray. Father, help us to be a people of your word. Give us a desire to want to know you more and to come to you through your word. Give us eyes that see that the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. And when we do come to him, would you give us life? Thank you for the promise of finding life both now and for eternity in your son so that we don't have to fear judgment, but we can come now and rest in your salvation. And we praise you and we thank you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.